Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. In the next two episodes, we'll be chatting with Brett Chedzoy, an incredibly busy man who holds multiple positions around agriculture, starting with the position of Senior Resource Educator with the South Central New York Agricultural Team. The forest manager for Cornell University's 4,200-acre teaching and research forest, while also teaching through the Cornell Cooperative Extension School and running Angus Glen Farms, a half-silvopasture project spanning over 300 acres. Fortunately, he found some time to sit down and talk with us about silvopasture, specifically around the lessons of applying theory and practice and working within local conditions. We talk a bit about forestry, ecology, climate change, and livestock. If you're not familiar with silvopasture, I really recommend listening to the previous episode where we outline the foundations for it, or you could just listen to our chat here and see if you'd like to dive in a little deeper to the subject after listening to this conversation. With that said, let's dive in. Brett, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us about this subject. For folks that aren't familiar with your work, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your farm, and uh, your teaching? Andy, I'm a forester. I work for Cornell Cooperative Extension of Schuyler County. I work regionally on both forestry education, but also enjoy doing a lot of things related to ag education, particularly around grazing and agroforestry. My wife likes to jokingly say that my other full-time job is the farm. Our family has grazing farms both here in upstate New York. We have Angus Glen Farms near Watkins Glen, New York, and our family also has a ranch in central Argentina where my wife, Maria Jose, is from originally. Awesome. So I came across some of your work through YouTube and the Cornell Extension School. Uh, you, you do a ton of free education on the civil pasture subject. And I started digging in and got into some of the stuff that you've done, some of the articles you've written, things like that. And you've done an extensive amount of work around existing forests, which is kind of unique in the civil pasture world. Most folks think about taking pasture and adding trees to it, which mostly speaking, pretty straightforward in terms of, you know, you're just going to go plant some trees. When you start going the other way around and you start talking about thinning and how that's going to affect shading and if you're thinking about things like how are you going to do uh, manage water coming through the site and dealing with often low pH soils and all of these different things, it becomes a much more complicated process. Could you talk a little bit about what this actually looks like? I know you've done a little bit of this um, on your own farm. We break civil pastures down into two basic types, even though I think it's more complex than that. But there's the sort of human-made civil pastures where we put trees into grassland environments or pasture environments, and then where we put pasture into the trees. So we take a area that's uh, naturally wooded and develop it into a functioning civil pasture and we've done much more of the latter on our farm here in upstate New York. Now in Argentina it's just the opposite. It's uh, basically natural rangelands but high rainfall very uh, favorable for growing trees but we had to put the trees there. The Argentines like to joke that 
God gave them great soils and climate and rainfall and everything, and then forgot to put the trees there. So that's that's what the ranchers do with their civil pastures in Argentina. But here in the Northeast, we're blessed with uh, usually abundant forests. If we stop mowing the lawn or growing the garden or plowing the field, it, it grows back to forest in, in many cases. And we have literally millions of acres just in New York alone, but uh, across the entire Northeast, there's there's a, a we're not talking um, small uh, small numbers here. We're talking about literally millions of acres of what was formerly agricultural land that has reverted to some type of woodland. Some in some cases, it's what we would think of as like a really nice looking forest. In other cases, it's more of uh, an invasive shrubland. So there's just really really um, large opportunities there to do civil pasturing from either of these directions, but much of our focus to date, both uh, personally on our farms as well as uh, what we're talking about through Cornell Cooperative Extension is to promote these opportunities to take that part of our farm that we think of as like unproductive or underutilized or, you know, it's not the place where we grow crops or raise hay or graze the animals and, and kind of bring that into the fold and use that acreage as well. But do it in a way that is good for us, good for the livestock and good for the trees and good for the environment. Yeah. And there's, there's a bunch of different pieces to that, right? Like in terms of what species to run through, how, how long you want them to graze, even on a site that you've never touched before and, you know, so on from there. So the, principles of good grazing apply to treeless pastures as well as civil pastures. We, and I like to tell folks that are getting into this that civil pasturing is really synonymous with intensive rotational grazing. That ability to concentrate animal impact for a short period of time and then let it fully rest and recover after that brief but intense grazing is really, really important. And that's how we largely avoid the past historical issues that gave woodland grazing, that is uh, having livestock running in wooded areas, uh, a, a negative connotation or a, a bad rap because essentially all of our little family farms for a century or more use the farm woodlot as that sort of sacrificial area where the animals were sort of stored when it was too hot or too cold or the good ground was planted or it was too muddy and animals were allowed to spend extensive periods of time in the farm woodlot. And I think by the middle of the past century, foresters and conservationists started to realize that when you allow this sort of unmatched access of livestock for um, months out of the year and year after year, that it, it can cause some, uh, both some uh, rather acute, but also some sort of insidious impacts to the health of that forest. And here in the Northeast, we, we enjoy a very high value hardwood forests in terms of the diversity and the, uh, the value of those trees, it's maybe a little different in other parts of the world or parts of the country, like in the southeastern U.S., where you have 
predominantly coniferous species used in silvo pasture. So if an animal goes and uh, damages a pine tree that might be worth a dollar, the, the, the loss there is relatively low. Whereas if the animal goes and damages a high value oak tree or maple tree that might be worth a hundred dollars, if not hundreds of dollars, that, that cost is quite high. Sure. So like when we think about grazing through the forests, you know, I, I think about like goats or sheep or whatever, stripping bark. Um, like it, is there, I know when you're thinking about like a pasture, you would say, all right, if it's eight inches high pasture, you want them to cut it down about four inches, five inches. Is there a similar measurement when going through the forest or is it more of like an art than a science? It's definitely both art and science. And I've learned this the hard way that you take complex natural systems. And if you start talking about them as complex natural systems, it confuses and frustrates folks. Any, anybody that's out there grazing understands that you, you pick up the, say, NRCS grazing guide and their rules of thumb, like in at eight and out at four inches, that, that's a great concept to have in mind, but it only works a very small part of the time in the real world. So there's certainly science behind all these recommendations or rules of thumb that support why we say do this and, and not this, but then we have to figure out how to extrapolate that over into the context of our own farms and pastures. So in civil pastures, what we're really trying to develop as the main food source is more herbaceous plants and forages versus woody browse. Now, depending on the civil pasture and the stage of development of that civil pasture, you might have more browse and less forages, but the, the forages would be managed or treated largely the same way as they would in any other pasture environment where we're trying to let the plants reach some level of biological maturity then we're going in there and hitting it hard the the term that's often used of mob grazing i think is is uh very illustrative of what we're really trying to accomplish we want the animals to eat the best portion of what's there but really trample and flatten the rest because in civil pastures we don't really have the same tools or options available to us as we do in our open pastures if we do a poor job of grazing in treeless pastures we can do things like go out and mow with a brush hog we can uh potentially spray the weeds we can in the worst case we can plow it up and reseed it and start over again but in civil pastures we have these things in the way called trees so we it's very difficult to go in and do those things that we often use as management tools to compensate for less than really good management in our open pasture so really the animal workforce and that animal impact is about the only tool that we have to manage the understory vegetation in the civil pastures. And that requires, it requires skill, no doubt about it. Sure. So I, I want to get a little bit into the weeds on uh, the overlap of civil pasture with like ecology. So like, as you were speaking before, 
a lot of the forests in the Northeast, including where I live here in Massachusetts, have been clear cut multiple times. And where at least where I am, one of the things that's fairly common is that a lot of forests here are trapped. I wouldn't say like permanently trapped, but somewhat trapped in uh, the ecological succession. So it's predominantly pines, a handful of oaks, um, a sparse uh, amount of hickories and pig nuts and things like that. So is that a part of the process for you is thinking about the ecological succession, the thinning process, or is it primarily about just pr productivity? Or again, is it, is it thinking about that long term? This is the, the end goal of the ecological system. And I want to keep the framework of the site based on the natural ecological conditions versus maybe um, one of the things that I personally see a lot is like bringing in like a bunch of fruit trees or high, high, high value trees and things like that. Those are really neat. It's a little bit of a loaded no, question. No, no, but it's a, it's a really neat question, Andy, and I'm glad you asked it because uh, so I'll, I'll share some quick thoughts and then we can discuss this in more detail. But I, I see civil pastures or civil pasturing is really kind of the epitome of working with nature in farming versus trying to defeat nature. And so, for example, clearing a landscape that naturally wants to be forest and turning it into grass, that is that is not going with nature. Now, if we can figure out how to grow forages for our animals and grow trees at the same place and same time, that to me seems like a win-win. So many of the principles that we use for good forest management also apply to good civil pasture management. We, we like diversity for a number of reasons, not least of which is today we can't predict what the next big pest is. So there's examples all across the country, but here in the Northeast, we're losing entire species right now, such as ash or hemlock to these invasive pests. And unfortunately, there's many new pests on the horizon as well. So we can't put all our eggs in one basket in terms of uh, saying like, okay, we're just, we're going to basically leave the oaks and take out all the aspen because what happens when Asian longhorn beetle comes through and it likes, likes our oak trees. So we've seen this, especially with uh, examples on our farm where we've planted trees so we have a number of plantation civil pastures on our farm here in new york and 30 years ago we were probably planting over 30 different tree species today two-thirds of those tree species have died or are aff afflicted to the point where they're no longer productive functional trees and these this is all by pests and diseases that weren't even on the radar when we were planting these trees 30 years ago so uh, where we mixed it up and plant a lot of different species on the same site, then those civil pastures or plantations are still pretty nice looking and pretty productive where we made the mistake of planting just one or two species and we lost half of those trees to a pest issue. Then it's, uh, you know, it was a lot of work for that ended in frustration. So our, our naturally occurring forests are the same way. We want to hedge our bets and grow a little bit of everything, not just a handful of species because they might be the most commercially important species. So I only answered part of your question, but I'll stop there for a moment. We can sure. 
library. Yeah, and I think you know one of the trees I know that you've posted about or uh, speak about a lot is the black locust, which I personally think is um, a tree that doesn't get the respect it deserves in terms of what it can offer. And you know, I, I think actually I was just listening to something last night from you talking about how it's been listed as an invasive in a lot of the Northeast and that it's not really an appropriate label for it. And uh, that's going to tie into a question I have about climate change later. But I think it's worth bringing up now talking about this idea of how do we bridge the gap between growing things for productivity and meeting the demands and the needs of our resilient local ecologies, which is not an easy bridge to gap. And there's no simple answer to it, but it probably requires a little bit of understanding of both sides of the the spectrum. Yeah. So for me, it's not as simple as saying, oh, something is, doesn't naturally occur in that area, therefore it must be bad. I think nature sorts that out for us. If we, and, you know, I can think of many examples um, just just in the tree world of where, you know, we thought we were going to grow the latest hate or the latest, greatest uh exotic species in 10 years or 20 years later i just told you what happened here on our farm something finally catches up with it and takes it out so in the case of locust oh and i'll go on record and say it is one of my favorite trees i i just think it's a an amazing tree um for on many levels uh, it almost has all the perfect attributes as an agroforestry tree from more of like a reforestation or afforestation perspective, I think it's one of the few, if not the only tree species that we can grow as a timber cash crop in the Northeast, meaning we can make that investment in planting black locust and, and actually get a positive return if you were looking at from a kind of strictly financial perspective. And, and that's, that's really not the way most of us that plant trees look at is like, oh, am I going to have a positive return on investment on this um but it's it's a tree that you know those of us that uh, know and love black locusts we still scratch our heads why some states have taken such a sort of a hostile stance or it, it has to do with the the fact that locusts grow so well that sometimes it creeps into these sensitive habitats such as like the pitch pine barrens and that is not not a favorable situation from the perspective of wildlife biologists that might work with endangered species within those very special habitats so it's 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 a very manageable situation though i think we can spend more time and effort trying to control locust and many other potentially uh degradatory plants in those sensitive habitats but saying like this ubiquitous, you know, locust is bad, and let's let's throw it on our invasive plant list. It, it just it defies common sense. So, to me, we need it, we keep losing species every time you turn around to these exotic pest issues. So we shouldn't be taking an important tree species like black locust and discouraging people from considering it at least for their agroforestry and forestry projects. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. 
If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. To circle back to uh, trying to integrate these ideas of agriculture or agroforestry with ecology, how do you, again, I I don't want to say mix and match, but how do you think about, I guess, the layers of how you would think in an ideal situation when you're working with one of these sites, how those things kind of come together? So you're always going to be money ahead, I believe. And by money, I really mean our time and our efforts that we invest in our farms. If you're, again, working with nature instead of against nature. So that is, to me, is one of our great unspoken advantages here in the Northeast for civil pasturing is that trees want to occur naturally. So, and, and I can think of many cases where it's justified to be planting trees, but we can often work with what we call natural regeneration in forestry. So we break regeneration down to natural and artificial. Artificial is simply trees that we put there. Natural regeneration is looking at what wants to grow on a given site and enabling it to uh, either become established or take something that's already established and allowing it to, to thrive and produce a, a healthy, productive forest or civil pasture. So I, I often explain forestry is just we're, we're out there enhancing natural processes that are already happening in these forest ecosystems. And that's what I really love about it because to me that it, it's so different than like what we do in much of agriculture today where we're trying to grow something there that really doesn't want to naturally grow there like corn or soybean or timothy and you know we're just investing um, a lot of resources in making that happen whereas like in civil pasturing to me it's it's just barely removed from working with like naturally occurring woodlands and we're just going in there and and really doing the same type of management that we would want to do to make that forest healthier and better and more productive in the first place. There's, there's just kind of subtle differences between the way we would manage the woods for again, healthy, productive woods versus healthy, productive civil pasture. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop there for a second, but I can explain what those subtle differences are. Sure. I I was going to guess probably about like thinning. So the light penetration and things like that, Uh, possibly species that are more forageable. So if you're thinking about like leaves and things like that, that are more uh, utilized, that can be better utilized by your livestock and things like that probably play a little bit of a bigger factor in that decision. But yeah, tell us a little bit more. One of the main differences between managing a woods for just tree production or timber production versus managing it as civil pasture is that we have to look a little more holistically at our thinning. So when we're trying to promote the growth of the best trees in our woods, and and these are best trees based on your objectives, by the way, it's not just for 
timber value. It can be for, you know, maybe you enjoy fall foliage colors or you want nut producing trees or you want trees that have uh, good consistent mass production to promote um, different wildlife species in your woods. But whatever your criteria are for best trees, it's, it's much like thinning around the vegetable plants in your garden. If you nurture them and give them sunlight by pulling the weeds that are directly competing with those tomato plants or other vegetable plants, they will respond well to that increased allocation of sunlight. So the trees in our woods, when you look at the average woods, regardless really of what the past management history is, you have some trees that are better than others based on what your objectives are. And But there's often so many trees growing in there that they're struggling against one another. So thinning or in gardening, it would be known as weeding. We're going in there and trying to identify those better trees and then reduce the competition around them. What qualifies as a healthier tree in your opinion? Is it just about the canopy or is there more to it? Both in our civil pastures and our woods, the things that I'm looking at are obviously species is important, but again, I, I like a little bit of everything. I'm looking at the what we call crown health or crown vigor because you can have a tree that at eyeball level looks great, but then you look up and you realize that tree is really distressed or it's just really, really um, being pressed on by its neighbors. I want trees that have longevity, so not the tree that's uh, on the verge of dying because of a pest issue or it's uh, decayed to the point where it's going to blow over in the next windstorm. Relative spacing is important because often you don't have uniform distribution of what you would think of as your better trees. So sometimes you have two or three really nice trees growing in a clump and it, it, it makes sense to leave all of them, but then you need to, to give them some help by perhaps thinning adjacent trees around that clump. But the more that we can spread it out, the better. So those, those are some of the main things, but I can think of countless other things that, and, and over time you just, you learn to pick up on these subtle differences. So that's, one of the reasons why I encourage grazers that are doing civil pasturing to try to work with a professional forester because the forester has spent his or her career just learning to pick up on those little subtle things that aren't as apparent to somebody that doesn't spend their whole um, day just looking at trees. And it's not, it's not a simple question like, okay, we like oaks, so we're going to leave the oaks and we don't like, uh, say basswood or aspen, so we're going to cut those out, or red maple. Um, it's, it goes much deeper than that, and there's just there's kind of the main factors that make one tree better than another, and then there's all these less visible things that we also learn to pick up on. Yeah, and I think about like a forest as it exists in terms of the the different things that already uh, are part of it, not just the trees. Obviously, the trees carry the most weight, quite literally and figuratively. 
but there's so many other components. If you have a low pH forest with pines, you have a lot of blueberries and you know how if you're clearing certain trees that might impact those secondary species and, and so on. Yep. The main difference is that we're not just focusing our attention on the upper canopy where the sunlight is reallocated to the crowns of the best trees. We're also having to thin all the way to the ground level so that we can get sunlight down at the soil surface, which is critical for growing forages and growing all this food source for the herbivores. And in forestry, we often ignore the understories because what's growing down beneath the camp, the main campy or the upper campy is kind of irrelevant to how those best trees are growing. At some point in the life cycle, we have to focus on that understory for the purpose of regenerating the next forest. But um, in, in civil pasture harvests or thinnings, it's, it's, it's challenging, but it's necessary to think about how do we take out, say, that invasive shrub layer that's growing under the, the mature trees. Yeah, it becomes complicated when those roots start really binding up around each other. Um, so that brings me to uh, a really, to me, challenging question is when it comes to thinking about the pasture component of these silvopasture systems, what what drives the grass species selection? Is that primarily what naturally fills in? How much involvement do you have with that? And how do you balance the pH in a lot of cases where pH in forests is generally pretty low? I think this is one of the most commonly asked questions around how do we establish civil pastures, like what species mix do we want to seed in there? Do we want to seed in forage species? What else do we have to do besides just putting seed on the ground? It, it certainly depends on each individual case. Now, in many cases, I think we're, when we talk about taking a wooded area and that has good potential for civil pasturing, we're often talking about these like farm woodlots. We're not talking always about like these, and, and that's, that's an important clarification here today because foresters in particular get nervous when they think we're talking about taking all of our deep forest lands and turning them into civil pastures. But I think even if we went... No old growth civil yeah, pastures. If, you know, even <laughs> if we went um, hog wild with civil pasturing here in the Northeast, I mean, realistically we're only going to scratch the surface on the potential acreage that we could do it on. And so we're, we're really talking about these areas that were former agricultural land that reverted back to woods and farm woodlots, often farm woodlots that have been mismanaged and degraded over decades of time. And this is a way to take kind of underutilized and marginally productive land and make it much better. So, when we go in and do this initial thinning and start to reallocate sunlight to the soil surface to grow forages, in some case, there's already an abundant seed bank of what naturally would want to occur there anyhow. But I can think of examples here locally where these types of civil pasture harvests have been done where there probably wasn't a good seed bank. And in those cases, I think it's probably a good investment to do some supplemental seeding with 
a, a diverse forage mix. One of the problems with doing artificial seeding of forage mixes is that there really has been no applied research or plant breeding done to develop what we think of as like civil pasture suitable species yet. Um, that said, you can look in any open woodlands, an area with, you know, maybe 50% shade, 50% sunlight and study what's growing there. Many of our cool season forages actually thrive in that um, partly shaded or lightly shaded environment, which is why we think of them as cool season forages. So orchard grass uh, to an extent, some of the legumes like red and white clover, yeah, some of the ones we wouldn't even think of, re canary grass, which I think it was more of like an open uh, hydric soil type species, can thrive or do quite well in, in um, some some moderate shade. But within any within any one of those species, there's uh, many varieties or biotypes out there which when there's a market for civil pasture seeds, I think the plant breeders will respond and they'll realize that there's this type of orchard grass that grows particularly well in lower pH soils or heavier shade than one that might be commonly planned for say like hay production. And so sure. until that happens, so the way I've approached it is largely, you know, build it and they will come. So if I, if I do the management correctly to get that sunlight on the ground, get the uh, inadequate amount of soil scarification so that, that seed, seed bank can express itself or the seed I might broadcast seed out there can have good seed soil contact and germinate. Uh, but then the kind of the third step there is that we need to then start managing the civil pasture in a way that we're encouraging the growth of the good stuff and discouraging the growth of the bad stuff. And that's where the real artful and skilled management comes in because, uh, you know, again, we don't, we don't really have the option of just going out there and clipping the weeds after we pass the animals through there. So one of the things I've noticed on your farm in particular in pictures that you've shown is that there's a lot of downed brush. And I was curious if that was something that was just out of, you didn't have time to clear it up, or was there a more of a logical reason for uh, incorporating that kind of stuff into the site itself? So I think what you're referring to, Andy, is our pictures of what we call slash. Slash is a forestry term for logging debris. It can, there's many names for it, downfall. So trees that just snap off and die and fall down. And in hindsight, that's one of the bigger mistakes that we've made where we have not done a adequate job of managing the post-harvest slash on the ground because that slash, those treetops, the branches, the stumps, the, by the way, we, we never remove stumps um, in a civil pasture. There's no reason to, but all, all those little obstacles on the ground we do it, but animals do it too. Like if they have to step over something or step around it, then they do that just that. So every place where we leave brush, every place where we leave branches and tops, that becomes like a little shelter for, yeah, the good plants can, can grow there, but the, 
plants that we don't want to see overrunning our civil pasture grow there too. And it's the, the grazing will help control those plants to an extent, but it's really that trampling or that density that is much more important for wiping the slate clean and kind of resetting all the plants on a level playing field each rotation through. So if we're leaving these too much slash on the ground, those become little pockets of things like it can be native plants like say blackberry, or it can be non-native plants like multiflora rose that get a foothold in those little shelters. And then it, by the time they, they really get rolling, it's, it's really hard for the animals at that point to stay ahead of those plants. So the, the best transitions to silver pastures I've seen is where relatively little slash is left behind or it's consolidated into piles. And consolidating into piles or windrows probably makes the most sense because then you're kind of keeping some of that refugia on site. If you take it out, so a friend of mine that did a 70-acre silver pasture harvest last year, he paid the loggers extra money to take a lot of the slash out and put it in windrows out in his pasture. And those windrows may be there for a long period of time, but he also has the option to then chip and sell that wood, or he could burn that wood if he wanted to. It's, it's really not taking up a lot of surface area when it's consolidated into these tall piles and windrows. So the opportunity cost of leaving it there is probably pretty low. And I think he's also realizing that it's, it's good for the some of the other wildlife that he wants to see in his pasture environment. So like turkeys are nesting in there, cottontail rabbits are using it, certain birds are nesting in it. Um, my guess is that some of the salamanders that normally wouldn't really be comfortable in a grassland environment, they're they're happy in those like little kind of shady, moist piles of wood. So you yeah. Know, it sounds very similar to like a hedgerow, but it, everything is dead. But you're getting all those different ecosystems. And like you said, you can ultimately use that that material later on for whatever it might be, whether it's kindling or actual firewood or uh, whatever. Leave, leaving the slash behind doesn't hurt anything, but it can complicate the management and make it much more challenging to then again use animal impact to... To, to stay on top of and control what happens next. And, and this is probably one of the biggest uh, potential pitfalls we like to warn everybody about. My my forest, forestry colleague, Peter Smolage, likes to call it the 50-acre train wreck, where we, we get all excited about going out and doing civil pasturing on our farms, but we tackle too much at once. Um, something that's out of sync with, the again, the workforce that we have so if we have uh six sheep and two cows and we go and thin 50 acres of woods and think that that handful of animals is going to be able to stay on top of the explosive understory growth that happens when we let the sunlight in that's that's unrealistic so if you know we have 50 cows or 50 sheep we can probably tackle a bigger chunk of acreage all at once but really the animals are, you know, once we get beyond the scale of maybe a couple acres, which we might be able to handle ourselves with 
a brush saw or a chainsaw or, you know, basically handwork. Beyond that scale, we're really counting on the animals to do it for us at that point. And again, because we can't just go hook on the brush hog and mow it down, we need to be thinking about how can I make it so that the animals can do the best job possible in here. And it's not necessarily that those animals are in there trampling it all down every single rotation, but periodically, maybe once one rotation per season or uh, probably not more though than like once every two or three years, we need to really pound it. And to pound it, that's that's where the grazing skill comes in. We have to we have to group them up and create higher densities. We have higher impact. We need to be thinking about doing it at a time of the growing season that those pl- those plant species that we really want to target and put a put a herd on are, are most vulnerable. Um, of course, we also need to be thinking about doing this when the ground conditions are suitable because if we go out and trample our treeless pastures during mud season it, it hurts the grass but the grass can bounce back from it when we do that to our trees the trees may not really show any symptoms of that at first but if you do that over and over and over years down the road those trees will start to manifest that uh, the symptoms of that chronic stress and once once we start to see those symptoms, things like dieback in the crowns or decay in the roots and the stems of the trees, it's too late. The, you can't really reverse that damage at that point. So we just, we have to recognize that that's going to happen if we're not being attentive to those details. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the first half of this interview. In the next episode, we'll be continuing this conversation. To support this project, you can go over to Patreon or poorproles.com to access our social media on various platforms. And of course, support us on iTunes by giving us a review, which increases our odds of getting new, more exciting guests as we continue to grow. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.